Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And his desire is for you, but you should rule over him. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond shall you be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground, and I shall be hidden from your face, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said, Therefore whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Okay. Uh, first, I'd like to look at the character of these two men as much as we know about them. Uh, let's put this in the backdrop of what we already know from Genesis chapter number uh, 3, when we talk about the fall of man. We know that God said he was going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here we have, as John tells us in his first epistle, a great description of who the seed of the serpent is and who the seed of the woman is. Uh, John tells us, using Cain and Abel as an example, that the seed of the serpent is filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, sin, hatred. And the seed of the woman, the seed of Christ, is uh, righteousness and primarily love, one who loves his brother. We'll get to that in just a moment. But it's God who has placed the enmity there. Uh, but what we see, instead of Moses explaining to us in great theological terms what's going on, Moses, the great storyteller, is giving us an account. He describes it rather than tells us. And so he introduces us to the first two boys born, Cain and Abel. There's speculation that they might have been twins. There's no confirmation of that. But we do know who they are, a little bit about their character from the account, primarily the names. In Hebrew, a man's character was known by his name. Uh, we have Abigail's husband as a perfect example, uh, Nabal, uh, whose name means a fool, and he was a fool. Uh, Cain and Abel, their characters and who they were as people is in their name. Eve, remember she was promised the Redeemer. The one who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. It said, the seed of the woman will come. He will crush the head of the serpent. And so when she gives birth to her firstborn son, her natural assumption 
in faith. God didn't give her any more information. This child is born and she names him Cain. I've gotten a man from the Lord. Here is the Redeemer come into the world. How quickly she would be disillusioned of that notion. But Cain means substance, acquired someone. This is a man of strength, a man of substance, a man of... Uh, you can tell by his descendants, he's one that uh, he loves to go out and till the ground, conquer the earth, uh, a powerful man, a leader, a builder of cities, uh, the inventor of, of music and, and uh, uh, brass and uh, tools and instruments and all of this conquest of the earth. Cain, substance, and then his brother Abel. Abel means emptiness, vanity. It's the exact same word used in Ecclesiastes for vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Breath, vapor, wind, nothingness. He is a tender of sheep, gentle, weak. Uh, obviously, you can see his mother's view of him when he's born. This is Abel. This is nobody. She might as well named him whatever, the next one. All of her hopes are on Cain, and Abel is the whatever, the other guy. Um, the, what's, what's that kid's name again? What's that one? Um, Abel, nothing. So they grow up. At the end of chapter 3, God clothes Adam and Eve in the skin of animals. And there we have implicated the first sacrifice for sin. Blood is shed to make a garment to cover Adam and Eve. There's an indication now that the sacrificial system has been set up. There's the language that we're going to come across in history when we get to the book of Exodus and Leviticus. But let's look at the context of this here. Moses is writing this during the wilderness wandering. So during that 40 years, Israel has already escaped out of Egypt. They've already had the tabernacle. They're already putting things in it. They've already watched the sacrifices. They already know how all the sacrificial system works. So Moses doesn't explain it to us here. He's writing to Israel after it already happens. And so here is the indication he might as well have said, and at this point God had taught them, all about grain offerings and what they're for, all about the sacrifices of animals and what they're for, that God allows a substitute to take the place of man. That's worked into the system, if you will. That the blood of an animal is shed so that man might live. And of course, from the very beginning, they knew that the blood of bulls and goats would never take away sin, but this champion who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent, there's the one you put your faith in. So we see this language about the sacrifices, especially when God says, in the fullness of time. The Hebrew is literally, at the end of days. It's a phrase that could be used to mean, uh, once upon a time, or, and it happened that, or after a little while. But the indication is there's a precise number of days and it's set and there's a set time where the people of God gathered together in order to offer their sacrifices and meet with God. From the very beginning, God has gathered his people together. He's accepted their sacrifices. He's accepted their worship and he's met with his people. And this is from the very beginning, right in the Garden of Eden, right outside of the Garden of Eden, as soon as sin enters the world, 
God provides a remedy. And so here come Cain and Abel. Now as I was studying this, I learned something new that I had never seen before. It says in verse number, excuse me a second, it says in verse number 3, in the process of time, in the fullness of time, that phrase that I was using, uh, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. That word offering in Hebrew is mincha. Mincha means a grain offering. Um, it's an offering of grain that was offered out of thanksgiving for the Lord. You thank him for the harvest that you brought in, and as thankfulness in the harvest, you would bring a tenth of it and offer it before the Lord. That was a mincha, and this is the phrase that uh, Moses uses to describe Cain's offering. But then it says, <clears throat> Abel also. In the Hebrew, the phrase is, and Abel. And then there's a pause, and it says, he also, the he is repeated, he also brought. The indication in the Hebrew is that Abel also brought the mincha, the grain offering. And this is confirmed in uh, the next verse, where it says, the Lord respected Abel and his mincha, his grain offering, but did not respect Cain and his mincha, his grain offering. So both of them brought a grain offering. But Abel brought something else. Also, the firstborn of his flock and the fat thereof. He brought the blood offering, the blood sacrifice. And for this reason, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews is describing the faith of the, of the men of old. And he says, <clears throat> excuse me, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. The word translated more excellent is simply a more fullness, a, an on top of offering. There was something additional to Abel's offering than there was to Cain's offering. And the addition to Abel's offering was the blood sacrifice. And the reason that it was accepted was because of faith. Now, Hebrews 4 is important. It says, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. By this faith, God testified in somehow receiving Abel's sacrifice that Abel was righteous and accepted and stood before God as a loved child. Whether the fire came down from heaven and consumed Abel's sacrifice, or whether it did not, Abel's offering was accepted. Therefore, God is testifying to him that he was righteous. And to all of us, Abel is righteous. Where does this righteousness come from? Not from Abel's works, but by faith. The righteousness of Christ we know from what Paul says, is put on Abel's account so that Abel is considered righteous because he brought his sacrifice by faith looking for the one who is to come. This is important for us to remember because we look at the contrast between these two men and we understand something about human nature. Abel was a nobody. 
He was not the strong one. He was not the powerful one. He was not the man from the Lord. Cain was very used to being the man from the Lord. He tilled the ground. He brought order out of chaos. He's the one that worked creation and had dominion over creation. He fought and he won. And yet, when it came to being accepted before God, Cain's assumption is, well, of course I'm accepted. I'm the man from the Lord. You can just see him singing the song. Who's the man? I'm the man. I'm the man. That's the song. I'm the man. I'm the guy. I've done it. Uh, Look at this. I brought forth this fruit. I'm going to bring my offering. And you can just see him offering that sacrifice before the Lord and beating on his breast and crying out loud, Lord, I thank God that I'm not like other men, like this guy over here. Check that guy out. He sure is a nobody over there. And then the fire comes from heaven and consumes Abel's offering. The wrong guy. This is the wrong guy, Cain says. What are you talking about? I'm the firstborn. I'm the man. I'm the guy that has the preeminence. Everybody knows that. What happened? John describes it in 1 John chapter 3 when he's describing the difference between the children of the devil and the children of, the, of, the, of, of God. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He says in verse number 10 of chapter 3, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. That is, they're revealed to us. We can see them. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. And the ones John is talking about are the people who are in the visible church. The Pharisees that hated the brother and wanted to destroy them. And why? Because here the Gentiles, the offscouring of the world... The fallen Jews, they were loving one another, living in deeds of righteousness and love and compassion and feeding the widows and feeding the orphans and gathering together and praying and worshiping together and loving one another. And they're the wrong sort of people. They're not the right sort of people. They're not our kind of people. These are the wrong sort. Look at these people. God's going to accept them Everybody knows they're sinners, they're tax collectors. And they hated him, just like Cain hated Abel. John says, don't be surprised if we run into the same dynamic. We will run into the same dynamic. But don't turn it on yourself to say, you know what, the reason the world hates me is because there's something wrong with me. Say, the world, the reason the world hates me is because... I'm loved by Christ and I'm the wrong sort of person. I'm not the right kind of guy. I say stupid things at the wrong time. I fumble around. I don't know the right clothes to wear. I have the wrong pedigree. I went to the wrong school. And when God testifies, I've accepted his works, the world will be infuriated. And righteousness and love go together. 
This is why Paul testifies love is the fulfilling of the law. When you love, you're righteous. When you're righteous, you love. But it's being righteous, having that clean conscience before God, that our works are accepted by God because of the blood of Christ, that frees us up to love one another. Because we, we don't have to be afraid of each other then. We don't have to be afraid that maybe you're outshining me a little bit. That's why love is the first and foremost of the fruits of the Spirit. We love one another. We don't have to be afraid of each other anymore. We don't have to attack each other, tear one another down, destroy one another. We can just talk to each other because our consciences have been cleared. This is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. But that in itself will arouse the hatred of every Cain that's ever lived and will continue to do so. The promise of the New Testament, the New Covenant, is that Cain will always be with us and we are warned to watch out for him. Okay, the same thing. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered into the Most High, having obtained eternal redemption. Now listen to this part. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, that cleansing of our conscience conscience frees us up of all the dead works that we do, like making sure our sacrifice is big enough and better than that, guys. There's, a, there's an old story about the uh, two men uh, that surprise a bear, and the bear comes running after him, and one man bends down to tie his shoes. He says, you, you don't tie your shoes, you can't outrun a bear. And the guy says, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. Well, that's not really love, but that's so often how we view our relationship with God. As long as I do better than that guy, then look at him. That guy's nothing. Well, obviously I'm accepted by God because I'm the man from the Lord. But God doesn't grade on a curve. The soul that sinned shall die. Abel knew that. And so with his offering of thanksgiving, he also offered the blood sacrifice, saying, this sacrifice, this substitute, will take away my sin because this champion, this redeemer, is coming. And he will take away my sin, for God has promised. And therefore my strength is in God, my trust is in God, my rest is in God. And one theme we see throughout all of Scripture is that the strong don't always win the race. Oftentimes the one that's chosen by God is the younger brother. The one chosen by God is the despised barren wife. The one chosen by God is the youngest of the group, the weakest army, the weakest person, the lamest person. God chooses the weak things of this world to put to death the wisdom of the wise. He will choose the Cain, or the Abel, to put to death the Cain 
every time. It's how God delights to work. And so even those, as James tells us, those who are rich and powerful in this world, there's, there's hope for them. But God will always humble the heart first. Because there is no room for the proud. God resists the proud. God resists the man from the Lord. And he gives grace to the humble. The last thing we read is God calling Cain to repentance. Um, when Cain is angry, he gets very angry, uh, God says to him, Oh, I got time. Uh, God says to him in verse number um, ba, 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 six, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? In verse number seven, he says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, do well, sin lies at the door. Now, these verses in here are extremely difficult to translate. Commentaries are kind of all over the place on this. What exactly is he talking about? Um, I'll give you a couple of the interpretations, and honestly, I don't think I can solve what it is, but I think the gist is the same. The first thing he could be saying, okay, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? That's clear. Why are you looking so grumpy, Cain? Why are you mad? Are you calling me unjust? And the next phrase he says, if you do well, will you not be, in the Hebrews, will you not be lifted up? So the idea is, if you do righteous works, will not your face be lifted up? That's one interpretation. And then the next one is, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and will have dominion over you. That's pretty common, and that makes perfect sense. Um, the idea is the more you sin and rebel against God, the more sin has dominion over you. Um, and if you do well, the, 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 and then the answer is, of course, well, Cain didn't do well. Abel didn't do well either. But Abel knew that and offered the right sacrifice. And God is saying, if you want to be accepted on your merit, don't call me unfair. If you did righteously, I would accept you. If you do sin, sin will destroy you. That fits with the doctrine of the rest of Scripture. There's another level to this which God could be saying based on what the Hebrew says, and that is the idea of this. If you are doing well, if you are righteous, your offering would also go up to heaven. The grain offering would also be accepted by God if you were righteous. But if you do not do righteously, you need to offer a sin offering because the word for sin and the word for sin offering are the same word. In fact, that word is most often used for a sin offering. So that could be what God is saying. I would have accepted your grain offering if you were righteous. But if you're not righteous, you need a sin offering. That's what Abel had that you did not. Here's our problem. We think our religious service is going to be accepted by God and give very little thought to the fact of whether we're doing well or whether we're doing ill and whether or not we need a sin offering. And the scripture teaches us no one approaches the Father except through Jesus Christ. He's the only sacrifice for sin. We could offer 10,000 rivers of oil in the firstborn son for our transgressions, and it would not be accepted. Why? Because we're not, we don't do well. We need a sin offering. Both of those interpretations are acceptable. I'm going to give you one more difficult thing, and this one I don't think I can sort out. The next phrase where it says, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Here's the problem. The way the New King James translates that, it sounds as if the word it refers to sin. 
The problem is the word it is third person masculine singular. And the word for sin or sin offering is feminine singular. So it can't refer to that. So what does it refer to? I don't know. The Old King James translates it, He, his desire is for you, but you should rule over him. Uh, Calvin believes that that refers to Abel. You're angry because you believe that I've accepted the younger when I should have accepted the older. Well, don't you know that if you had done well, the order would have been there? His desire is for you, but you should rule over him because you are the firstborn. But the reason I accepted Abel's was because you don't do well and you didn't recognize that. I think there's some merit to that. The other interpretation, of course, which is the there's a problem with the personal pronouns, is that sin uh, desires to rule over Cain, but you should rule over sin. The problem with that interpretation is it doesn't say what sin desires to do. It says sin desires you. Um, and so that's just up to interpretation. So let's move on from that. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that. This is God's warning to Cain and Taking out all the controversy, here's what's clear. If Cain was righteous, he would have been accepted. If he's not righteous, he should have thought about a blood sacrifice. That's what it's for. It points to Christ. And if he had asked God for mercy and offered that sacrifice in faith, he would have been accepted and the righteousness of Christ would have been given to him. Instead, he responds in fury. Sin has dominion over him. He meets with Abel in the field and he kills him. Uh, we don't know how he killed him, but he did. The picture of a giant rock could have been a giant rock. Tiller the ground, it could have been a, an axe, a, a plow, whatever it was. He kills Abel. His blood is spilt on the ground. Then God appears and says, Cain, where is your brother? Cain says, hey, am I my brother's keeper? That's my job to watch him now? And then God confronts him. God knows exactly where Abel is. And he says, the blood of your brother is crying out from the ground. This is a beautiful thought. It's put right at the very beginning. Think about all of the innocent blood that's been shed in the world. The millions that have been slaughtered by wicked, brutal, cruel, heartless men. It cries out for vengeance. And the God of justice hears that blood crying out. That's a beautiful thought. None of it is wasted. God hears it all. God immediately curses Cain. He says, the fruit will not yield, its, uh, the earth will not yield its full strength to you. That's an amazing thought as well that God created the world to have so much more yield than it does. Right now it's under the curse of sin and it's not yielding its full strength. It's an astounding thing to think of. Uh, that the yield of the earth is also in the hands of God. Um, we're uh, in California here. We are in the middle of a drought. Uh, it just rained, not as much as I would have liked, but a little bit. Um, and I hope we're crying out to the Lord to be merciful to us and send rain. But all the crops, all the crops, the trees, the things that we depend on for food, uh, the, they were unable to uh, get the full yield of rice this year because of the lack of water. And our area here is one of the world's biggest producers of rice. 
Um, the normal crop is about $80 million a year, and they're down to about $3 million right now. It's a huge blow. Um, and we need to think about that, that it's the mercy of God. Uh, this is why we thank God and praise God for our food, because he's the one that causes the ground to bring forth its full strength. And right now, the ground is not bringing forth its full strength. As the years go by, because of the gospel of Christ, because of the mercy of God, and because of the kindness of God, God reveals secrets to men and women as things progress. He reveals to us the secret of penicillin mold, the secret of light, the secrets of electricity. But all of these things come because God opens the eye and brings it all together so that it happens. But even now, the world is still not yielding its full strength because of sin. Uh, that makes us long even more for the new heavens and the new earth, doesn't it? It's a tremendous thing. But that's the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ is a different thing. Uh, the writer of Hebrews again says, you, all of us, believers who have come to Christ, we've come to Mount Zion. That's where Christ is reigning now. We've come to where Christ is reigning, which is so much different and so much better than the old. We've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. All of us are the firstborn heirs. Our names are registered in heaven and no one can take them away from us. It's remarkable. And then he says this, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What did Abel's blood speak? Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. It cried out for condemnation. When Jesus' blood was spilt, what did it cry out for? It cried out for mercy, for pardon, for reconciliation, and for peace. That's a tremendous thought. Cain and Abel, here are the very first two men born, the first murder, all still point to Jesus Christ. And that's where our heart should be. What a tremendous thing to long for, for that day when the earth will finally yield its full strength because all sin and misery and innocent blood is vindicated and the blood of Jesus draws us to the innumerable company of angels, the church of the firstborn, the spirits of just men made perfect. It's a tremendous thing to long for. Let's pray and then we'll open it up for any questions. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this. We thank you for the promise of our Redeemer, the Savior, uh, that uh, we know that justice is coming, that the shed blood of all those who have been sh uh, murdered and destroyed innocently, the hatred of the evil one will not go unpunished and un. Uh, and not judged, but you are the judge of all, and you delight in bringing justice and reconciliation and peace. Uh, we pray that you would cover us with the blood of the Lamb and draw us uh, to you more and more each day. Forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and cause us to walk in newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can unmute if you have any questions. I have a question. All right. Um, how do you reconcile what God says to Cain about if you do good, won't 
you know. Won't you be part. accepted? Yeah. And that, and yet not fall into the error of thinking you can, you know, if you do good things, then good things will happen. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen. That's an excellent question. Here's the problem. Cain was blaming God. Cain was blaming God for his circumstances that God had accepted Abel's sacrifice unfairly. And so when God was talking to Cain, God is saying, am I unfair? If you do well, won't you be accepted? In other words, the fault that Cain wasn't accepted was because he was a sinner. He didn't do well. The fault is not in God, but in Cain. And so God is not saying, uh, just like Paul said in, in Romans chapter 3, it's the doers of the law that are justified, not the hearers of the law. But there's not saying, therefore go out and do the law so that you'll be justified, because we're, it's not possible. All we have to do is open our eyes and look at our heart just one little tiny bit, and we'll know that the judgment of God that's come upon us is perfectly just, and that God is vindicated when he speaks, just like David confessed. The problem was, when Cain says God is unjust, he's blaming God, thinking that Cain was righteous and deserved better. And that just isn't the case. And so when God says, am I being unjust to you? If you did well, I would have accepted you. You didn't do well. You should have offered a blood sacrifice. I offered you mercy. You didn't want it because you thought you did well. So when we say to ourselves, if we do good things, God owes us, we are acting as if sin doesn't exist in us. And that's not the reality. So that's the problem. The sinful nature of man is so corrupt that everything we receive from the hand of God comes not from merit, but of grace alone. Did that answer your question? Sam. Yes, Carmen. Could you speak a little bit to the idea of the blood that cries out from the ground for vindication and the way that some Christians become very fatalistic about the judgment of God will sometimes or will someday uh, take care of all of that and so we don't need to worry about justice now and pursuing justice. Um, well, Romans 13. Uh, isn't the state the minister of, of wrath? And the, they have the sword for a reason. Um, God will sort out everything on the last day when he comes. But as, uh, as human beings on the earth, uh, especially since the flood, after the flood, God established civil government and he said, uh, if man sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God's vengeance is given to us in shadow, never perfectly, but in shadow to restrain evil through the hand of the magistrate. Um, here in uh, our country, uh, we, we have the uh, duty and the great privilege of uh, voting for our magistrates. We have a system of setting up judges. Um, and as responsible citizens, we are to do whatever it takes to ensure that justice is done. That command is given throughout all of the Old Testament, and it doesn't ever contradict God as judge. But throughout all of Scripture, even in the New Covenant, when James talks about justice for the orphan and the widow, um, God has a great concern for justice. So I guess I'm, I'm, my mind is opening up more as I'm talking. Um, man being made in the image of God, mankind, men and women, being made in the image of God, 
we were created to reflect God's attributes. This shows to us that one of God's attributes is justice. God's omniscience, his knowledge of all things, sees the blood on the ground and it cries out for justice. And God responds because God is a God of justice. And he created us also to respond to the blood falling on the ground. There's a great deal of hardness of heart that happens when we can see innocent blood shed and shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, so what, they probably deserved it anyway. That shows that we have moved far from God because of sin. The blood of anyone shed, from Syrian refugees to uh, people fleeing the drug cartels uh, to uh, you know, the, the massacres on the streets, the things that happen should call us all out um, to uh, cry out for justice. Sometimes we take to the streets to cry out for justice. That's the human heart saying justice must be done. And at the same time, we know because of sin, justice is never perfect on this earth. And therefore we long for just justice. And what keeps us sane is looking forward to the judge who will come from heaven, who will judge everything perfectly and right every wrong. That way when the district attorney messes up and the criminal is released on a technicality, we don't go insane. I asked, I knew a man who was a police officer who spent a great deal of time uh, confronting sin and confronting those things and arresting people and bringing them in and talking about all the times that justice isn't done and just sentences are not given. And I said, what do people do who don't believe that God is coming as a judge from heaven? And he says, they either pour themselves into a bottle or they eat their gun. Um, because you can't see the injustice and cruelty and hatred right up close every day if you don't believe that God is a just judge uh, without despair. And so, on the one hand, as image bearers of God, we cry out for justice and do everything in our power to receive justice, but to rein that in so that we don't become bloodthirsty monsters ourselves God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Anything else? All right. Well, all of you have a wonderful evening. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next week, same time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.